Modern life is crazy busy. Power your midlife energy with all-natural Bossa Bars Menopause Energy Bars. Delicious, keto, and intermittent fasting-friendly. These bars help women manage weight and energy during all stages of the pause. Try them at bossabars.com. That's B-O-S-S-A bars.com and save 10% with code KD10. Welcome to A Certain Age, a show for women who are unafraid to age out loud. A Certain Age is all about thriving in midlife, how to reinvent if needed or desired, how to make the most of the years that stretch before us, how to live a wonderful life. I'm excited to welcome a guest today who's made a life's work of creativity, reinvention, and finding abundance, joy, and beauty all around her. Melina Hammer is a best-selling cookbook author, an award-winning food photographer, stylist, chef, and now owner of Catbird Cottage, a destination bed and breakfast in New York's stunning Hudson Valley. After years working with the New York Times, Eating Well, Blue Apron, and others, she now cooks for guests at Catbird Cottage, where she grows an heirloom kitchen garden and forages wild foods, curating of-the-moment seasonal menus for weekly guests. Her most recent cookbook is A Year at Catbird Cottage, Recipes for a Nourished Life. She joins me today to talk about how to cook and live in a more connected, bountiful way. Welcome, Melina. Thank you so much, Katie. I'm really excited to have you uh, as a guest today. We we talked a little bit on our pre-call about how you live in such a beautiful era, part of the world, the Hudson Valley. I have a personal connection to that. It's where my husband was born and raised. We have relatives all over the Hudson Valley. And I'm, I'm really excited to dive in and learn a little bit more about how that region informs your work and your cooking. Um, I'm th- ready for this. Let's do it. Uh, I, said, I said at the beginning, you have a celebrated cookbook. You've got a very large community that, that both enjoys Catbird Cottage in person and online. Your current focus is food, and we're, we're definitely going to uh, spend the bulk of our time exploring that. But I know that you've worked as a metalsmith, a photographer. You had uh, some work in film. I would love to just start with a little stage setting. How did you evolve your career over the years as a maker and a creator? Well, uh, I had initially, actually, even earlier than the metalsmithing chapter, uh, attended Ivy League school and realized that my plan to be an international foreign relations correspondent (laughs) was, you know, uh, uh, the notion of uh, an enthusiastic 18 or 19-year-old who loved travel. And when I really started to unpack the nuts and bolts of that, I decided, oh, well, maybe I'll keep the travel aspect, but move along to something else that actually might speak more deeply to something that would satisfy, you know, my life's pursuit. And I actually stumbled upon metalsmithing and taking a um, metals class at a a renowned uh, arts university back in Detroit, my hometown. And I somehow gelled and had catalyzed um, what would become a little more than a decade, uh, almost 15 years, where um, I I went into art school and I felt super passionate about making something from nothing and seeing it articulated in metal meant that it would last well, well, well beyond my own lifetime. So I could have some kind of mark on history or create some kind of legacy. And uh, in addition to that, I was really connected to um, 
mythological um, um, sort of ideas and ancient cultures. And so I would use really low um, technology processes and form these beautiful surfaces and wearable pieces. And I thought, this is going to be my life. Um, my husband and I moved to New York shortly after 9-11. And the New York I used to visit was, I felt, more intensely creative and more welcoming of a broader spectrum of creativity. And so after 9-11, it felt uh, like a different city in, in lots of ways. And because I was working as a waitress or doing other kinds of odd jobs to sustain myself as I built my metalsmithing career, I was previously in Philadelphia and I actually was gallery represented and I had pieces in Japan and the UK and a piece in the Smithsonian. But in New York, it was just a totally different ball of wax. So after a few years of doing that kind of uh, supplemental work, both my husband and I agreed that it just, the trade-offs weren't adding up. And I decided to pivot and try something that felt like it would be more commercially viable and use the creativity that was, you know, my guiding light kind of thing and, and apply it to something that felt like we could sustain ourselves without having to let go of a trapeze only to grab another. And <laughs> um, yeah, well, that's the life of a freelancer. And of it's just course. like, okay, you, you almost never have a safety net. And how do you find ways to um, retool the, the skill set or refine what you have accessible to you so that it could be, you know, adaptable to, you know, any one of a number of things. And initially, as I was letting go of metalsmithing, I felt intensely guilty because I thought, oh my goodness, this is my deepest passion and I'm going to be trying on a new hat. When in fact, once I really seized on uh, doing food photography, and, and let me say it wasn't only food photography at the outset, it was really, and, and naively actually very at the early stages, me thinking, oh, well, I have a fine art background so I'll just, I, I know colors and textures and relationships to forms. I can do styling and, and um, the photography all together. And in fact, I was missing a key ingredient that very gratefully I was able to, um, to bring into the fold um, fairly immediately for a few certain reasons. But I didn't have discernment, discernment of ingredients and discernment of a culinary sort of foundation. And that came thankfully rather quickly to follow but the the industry felt like okay this is something i could latch onto and feel like there's lots of room for expansion i love that you gave your i love that you gave yourself permission to try something that you you, you didn't know how to do 100% sometimes i feel like oh yeah you know, that 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 I, I myself have experienced this or the trap of perfectionism, like you want things to be perfect before you get going, before you try. And that, you know, you were um, you know, a little bit naive to what you didn't know, but that allowed you to get started. Yes. For myself, I don't have the, the circumstances that you described. For me, it's always I and because it's 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 funny because I can be naive in, in that sort of mindset, but it really gives me. Uh, a confidence to leap to say, I'm going to figure it out. Um, if there is some piece, something that I can anchor myself to, I can find ways to convince myself that I can figure the other aspects out because I've done 
X, Y, and Z already, or I've done this so far. And therefore I can give myself the permission to be confident so that I can say, you know what, I'm going to, you know, like this part feels right. And let me focus on that and then make whatever other transitions I need to make, which aren't easy and often very nuanced, right? <laughs> but still like doable. And and it's so important to do that because otherwise, um, you know, there's this sort of stagnation or fear. And I don't want to ever be paralyzed by fear because I've been in those positions and it's really unfulfilling, right? I love that you that you took that leap. And it's interesting because you're Previous jobs in metalsmith were something that was very concrete. Now you work in a more like a pheromone medium, right? We we create food and then we consume it and we eat it. And uh, it's it's interesting that you've made that sort of jump. Your cooking work is very much linked to Catbird Cottage. I know that you offer eating events and curated dinners and cooking workshops. I would love um, for you to share with our listeners a little bit about. Uh, Capper Cottage, the landscape and the environment in which you you work and create your your food. Oh, I would be happy to. I want to touch on what you mentioned, however. Yes. That wonderful ephemeral nature, like here it is, this irony of going from something super concrete that could last for forever to something that's incredibly um, temporary. But to me, in addition to that, which you're exactly dead on with, to me, in addition to that, there is this, I get to be part of facilitating someone's special moment and therefore their next greatest memories. And those memories are anchored in our lives for decades and decades. And in some ways, that's even more personal because I get to be part of your life. And that to me felt like, oh, well, this is a, a fair switch. And kind of the same thing, creating something from nothing and being able to last for forever, but out there in people's lives in a little bit of a different way. Yeah, it's beautiful. So. It's so collaborative the way you describe it. You yes, know? because it's, it, definitely. It's, it's not just like, well, here is the food that I that I foraged or that I found or I purchased that I cooked, I prepared, you know, the the meal has to be enjoyed by other people. So it's a it's like a co-creation of sorts. Yes. So we have a little Cape Cod cottage on a mossy hillside and uh, a beautiful winding road. And um, there are a lot of things to fall in love with here. There is a rich ecosystem of birds and uh, pollinators. I have installed a variety of pollinator gardens, my heirloom vegetable garden. And these things are textures and colors throughout all seasons that kind of embrace the, the, the entire landscape, really. And it is a place where it has um, created a real space for contemplation and for uh, a way to hit reset and even a certain kind of sanctuary for myself and for my husband, Jim. And every guest who comes here um, we hope that there is that opportunity and experience for them and for the incredible vast majority of people. There is this meaningful exhale in their stay here or in their dining with us for an evening. And it's really a magical and very much a collaborative experience because we get to build humanity together. And that is some of the magic stuff of life, I feel. 
um, we named the cottage Catbird Cottage because there is this North American mockingbird called the catbird who migrates here in spring around May and begins its lusty song to woo its mate and then um, have babies and they fledge and then they leave again around late September or October. The song is one of the quirkiest things and we'd never heard it before. And upon hearing it, it was as if it was like R2-D2 meets cartoon Disneyland. It was very, very much this. <laughs> Melina, I was, I was not expecting you to say that. <laughs> you just... <laughs> it's, it's so, so quirky. And it's like, go on YouTube, find the Catbird song. The males will sing to claim their territory for 10 to 15 minute stretches. Oh my gosh. And it is the cutest and sweetest and very humorous feeling sound. And they actually can remix other bird songs. So they will, sometimes it'll sound as if, oh, that's part of a blue jay or part of a cardinal song, but remixed by this quirky, funny bird. And they are very curious birds where some birds are, are timid or, or um, very much not interested in being around humans. Catbirds want to know what you're doing. And they're just super wry and darling. And we thought, oh, of course, this is, this is what the name's going to be, Catbird Cottage. I absolutely love this story. I am going to uh, Google the Catbird bird song and put uh, something into the show notes so listeners can head to a acertainagepod.com uh, or they can hit Google themselves to figure it out. Uh, Melina, we're heading into a quick break, but when we come back, I want to discuss more about Catbird Cottage and what is often on your menu there. We'll be back in just a minute. Have you ever successfully set someone up on a date? In my 53 years, I've only ever made one successful match for a friend, which is why I'm so eager to introduce you to the nonprofit Let's Talk Menopause, because I know this is a relationship that's going to work. Let's Talk Menopause is changing the conversation around menopause so women get the information they need and the healthcare they deserve. Understanding menopause is a lot like solving a tough jigsaw puzzle, as there are so many pieces. Menopause can have over 34 symptoms, insomnia, joint pain, low libido, difficulty sleeping, irritability, mood swings, fatigue, brain fog, painful sex, urinary leaks. It is a long list. Visit their website, letstalkmenopause.org, to find all the tools you need the 101s to understanding the physical and mental menopausal changes, information about their public ad campaigns and advocacy work, a downloadable symptoms checklist to share with your doctor, and so much more. Visit letstalkmenopause.org. Together, we can change the change. Melina, we're back from the break. We went into it talking about the song from the Catbird. Um, you have painted such a gorgeous, vivid picture of where you work and live. I felt myself doing that exhale that you described that your guests get to experience. I would love for you to share a little with us about what is often on the menu. You've written a cookbook that includes a 100 of your different recipes. We are recording this show during the fall season. What would be on a fall Catbird Cottage menu? Mm. Um, always the conversation about what the menu will become. 
begins with understanding our guests and any um, dietary restrictions or preferences or things people have seen, whether via my Instagram page or via my Food 52 profile or via the book. And then it's a certain kind of a collaborative effort, mostly on my end, because I, I like a certain freedom to pull from what I've recently produced or finding a cadence that creates uh, a sort of nourishment without feeling full in a heavy kind of a way. I always want someone to feel uplifted by a meal that they have here. So for fall, one of my favorite things is the ultimate nibbles platter. And this is something that anyone can recreate based on what you personally have available to you. Um, and my ultimate nibbles platter and what features in the book includes a autumn olive jam, which is a wild and invasive tree berry, which it tastes similar or cross between raspberry and cranberry in a really um, sort of juicy and um, custardy kind of a way. The, the texture of the jam feels very custardy. So it's a tart jam and it goes extremely well with a triple cream cheese that I often serve. For my personal favorite, there is a, a local Chisholm Creamery and they have a cheese called Nimbus, which is their version of this triple cream. I always joke that it's like, it's so creamy, you want to rub it on your elbows, and your temples, it's just so great, you know. Um, Midlife women sourdough. need to rub this cream everywhere. Yeah, so, right? come on, emollients, yes. <laughs> So um, with that are a series of crunchy things. So there's spiced nuts from the book that are uh, have uh, sort of flecked with rosemary and nutmeg and brown sugar and cayenne. There's sourdough crackers that are beyond delicious. Everybody raves about these crackers. Sometimes there's my rye lavash, which is sort of honey scented, super crisp, and always, always some array of pickles. Usually I've, I'm growing some kind of either bush bean or runner bean. And these, when they're harvested young, are super crispy and juicy, or crunchy and juicy. And I'm using different aromatics and those combinations along with, you know, an ultimate um, sort of pickly kind of um, facet with the creamy and fatty um, sort of category. And then the bright and the crunchy. I'm just looking to cover each of these kinds of textures and flavors. And once you address those textures and flavor layers, you have an infinitely adaptable variety. So the ultimate nibbles platter is something where uh, I can uh, showcase preserves from every season for guests. And in addition to that, things that um, are mainstays for me, like the sourdough crackers, for instance, which also have kind of an infinite uh, versatility based on whatever aromatics you sprinkle onto them or the kinds of flour you decide to incorporate. Are, now, are you making um, these crackers yourself or is this? Oh, yes. Okay. Everything's made by me. <laughs> Everything. Melina, when you say, oh, yes, you have to understand that some of us, you know, like buy our crackers at Whole Foods. Right. So I, <laughs> I mean, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I buy crackers too. But these sourdough crackers are really special because there is a, first of all, you know, I make sourdough bread and it's the discard of the starter. It's the stuff that you would otherwise toss. And I come from a really frugal um, virtue, you know, like frugality is a virtue and you don't want to waste. And why waste something when it could turn into something absolutely delicious? Never mind the fact that there's a, a quality because of the 
fermented nature of the batter, the dough, that becomes a kind of, it translates once it's been baked into a sort of cheesy, earthy, wonderful quality. And then it's, it's just airy and crispy. And because it's the best cracker I've ever had now, it's always part of a menu if I'm serving this platter. But I also love like, oh, my favorite crackers that I can buy from the shop too, because that's such a valuable thing when you want to entertain on a moment's notice and you haven't had a chance to bake crackers. So I, I respect and uphold both of those. But yeah, it's a homemade cracker. Um, and it's it's actually surprisingly easy to make. And over the years, I've done lots and lots of different variations on them. Well, I would love to get a copy of that recipe for the show notes. And I would also encourage everybody to go buy um, a year at Catbird Cottage recipes for a Nourish Life because I know that, you know, these it's a wealth of recipes that are like that and that you can really expand your own repertoire. Um, when you expand your own repertoire, you know, do you prefer to experiment? Do you love, um, you know, cooking old favorites? Is it a hybrid? And, and what are you excited about cooking now that it's fall? Most often I am experimenting because I don't feel like this is sort of a pitfall of being a recipe developer and someone <laughs> who's just saturated in food is I don't get to revisit a lot of things because I'm always working on creating something new. So it's almost always inspiration from a meal out that I might've had or something I came across in a magazine that I loved and then finding ways to riff on that. And it's exciting because almost always I land on something new fairly immediately. And when I don't, I just go searching on the web or paging through my catalogs of books and inevitably something jumps out at me and it's like, oh, right. Or, or I'm growing something and I need to use it up. Or I have something in the fridge lurking back there and being like, hey, don't forget about me. You've got to use this and finding some kind of inventive way that maybe was surprising in the end to how delicious it became. And that is just sort of always happening for me these days because of the nature of the work that I do. Yeah. Um, so I have, by the way, right Melina, now, I have that, yeah. I have that kitchen as well. I have that, that kitchen where yes. I'm like, it's time to make that kitchen, you know, fridge frittata where everything's going into it because, you know, we get, I get excited. I buy a lot of stuff and, and sometimes it's hard to, to use it. So I, I love that you create these crackers out of something that might be thrown away because you, you know, that, that's just proof, you know, the crackers and the frittata are proof that you can make magic out of ingredients that many of us just think about tossing in the trash. Oh, absolutely. I even have a recipe in the book that includes the pickled aromatics and the brine from any kind of vegetable pickle in a rice and potato dish that is like the epitome of nourishment and comfort. Yum. And it's got these like custardy and, and soothing notes. And then it's got these wonderful bright notes. And it is vegan. So it is, you know, adaptable um, broadly. But you can always add more to it, like either bonito flakes or a little bit of um, like sopressata or tinned fish or whatever. And, and it's just this easy, approachable dish that makes saving these little dregs of things absolutely relevant because they become part of what shines in the finished dish. 
You're making my mouth water. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> I love it. So you are. So you asked a second yes. part of the question, which I've completely lost track of. What was it? You know, that's, what a, am I... that's a good question. I th- oh, I know. What are you looking forward to making this fall? You know... Oh, yes. Yes, yes. Well, I am very soon going to be cooking a five-course dinner from my book for just shy of 30 people. So it's going to be a real event. Nice. And one of the dishes I have returned to so many times that I have cooked very frequently are the braised short ribs and creamy beans from the winter chapter in my book. And this dish is like velvet and satin and sustenance and joy. And it's humble food, but it's elevated food. And it is... um, I use a little bit of gochujang in um, sort of anointing all of the vegetables, which often include fennel and shallots and beets or kohlrabi, and deeply caramelizing these these vegetables after having seared, deeply seared the short ribs. And then it's like a beef bourguignon, but swapping these kinds of ingredients for the traditional. and a lot of homemade stock goes in, red wine goes in, other aromatics go into the pot, and then all of it bubbles and simmers for an elongated period in the oven, and out comes magic. And it's um, meat you can eat with a spoon. Beans are of the most humble foods you could find, but uh, I usually put a, a, a like a heel of Parmesan in as they cook. And then the mixture of the two, the beans and this um, stew with this deeply satisfying sauce, the two combined are just fabulous. And in the end, I'm always adding bright elements because you don't want it to just feel rich and heavy. There are almost always either herbs from the garden or wild greens, and they are absolutely zippy, bright, uplifting elements and crucial in the mix of it all. This sounds divine, and I can I can smell so divine. I can smell it in my mind, and I am excited to get my hands on this cookbook and learn how to make this for myself. You know, it's interesting. My 22 year old daughter introduced gochujang to our kitchen. She uh, lived and worked in Asia during a gap year after high school, and came back and said, "You know, why isn't this in the kitchen?" And we've added it, and we use it in lots of things. It would never have occurred to me to put Parmesan into a dish as sort of an enhancement for um, a short rib. I'm excited to learn that hack. And I'm I'm excited to explore more of uh, what you offer in your recipes, both in your book and on Food 52, which is yeah such a it's phenomenal a- resource. Listeners who are not familiar with it, can you quickly share what that is and why they should be spending some time there? At Food 52? Yes. So Food 52 is sort of this incredible umbrella of Um, home goods and life hacks and home tricks and delicious recipes and a community hotline. I have been a longtime member and um, for the past two years, I have been a resident. They sort of coined me as the Hudson Valley resident. And uh, many of the recipes speak to the things that come in season um, here in the Hudson Valley, New York. But also my interest is always to produce and to deliver 
deeply satisfying flavor layers. You're speaking to the gochujang and to the parmesan. These are these like little insertions of um, important punchy things that deepen and expand all of the kinds of flavors that we can enjoy. And they feel in the end kind of subtle, but there's like this extra something, right? That you can't even necessarily put your finger on. Yeah, and we- twice a month at Food 52, I create delicious recipes trying to look at either, oh, here's a way to use apples because it's apple picking season. Or, oh my goodness, it's summertime and nobody wants to cook, so let's make something really fast and zippy and gorgeous. And it runs again, but it's always looking at how can I make something delicious and will it ignite someone else's passions and then seeing it live in other people's lives in their kitchens is the best thing ever. Yeah, it's a wonderful resource. And as we head into, you know, the holiday and entertaining season, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, you know, Kwanzaa, um, the Jewish holidays are, you know, in our future New Year's. It's a wonderful for hostess gifts. It's a wonderful place to find recipes to kind of maybe liven up your family standards. I'm curious, Melina, you live in upstate New York. So much of your work is rooted in this sort of hyper-local and fresh ingredients. For listeners, because a certain age listeners are all over the country, they come from different regions. Uh, if they don't have access to what you have, like the woods and the fields, what are ways that you would encourage people to cook more seasonally, no matter where they live, um, in, or even if they live in a city or a different region? Well, I think that the wonderful thing is that this is applicable to wherever you are, that if you've got a community garden or if there is some kind of notable city park, that you can start there. That's how I actually started. I lived in Brooklyn, New York, and I knew nothing about foraging. But because it was interesting sounding to me, I went on a plant walk and just a whole new world opened to me. So if there is a city park, there um, there's actually a whole section dedicated in the book that talks about foraging wild foods and how to properly identify them. There are foraging guides for every region of the United States, as well as for all kinds of regions worldwide. That exists, that's out there if it's of interest. Separate of that, I'm always a big fan of the farmer's markets and local grocery stores, because local grocery stores often will carry ingredients specific to the communities that live there, so I lived in Jersey City for a spell, and I, there was this incredible Dominican grocery store, and I was able to become more familiarized and broaden my own repertoire with all kinds of root vegetables and beautiful tropical fruits, for instance. So it's really just paying attention to what's near you and trying to connect to local producers or the niche ingredients that are available in your own orbit. And then that way, that establishes a kind of an adventure in food and a magic as a result, perhaps, in food, and then therefore joy. And that you can just repeat over and over and over again. Oh, my gosh. I love that. That is such wonderful advice. And I I love this notion of of sort of focusing on and and enjoying the magic in food. Uh, I love this evolution that you just shared about how you started off uh, in Brooklyn and that you're now living more rurally. you, you have a new sort of focus on slower living. I, I'm curious, could you have done this? Could you have 
launched Catbird Cottage when you were younger. What role, if any, did aging or getting to midlife play in your evolution uh, in terms of your food and your life and your creativity? I love this question. So as a younger woman, I was hot about being out and the activity and the bustle of New York City was a stimulation that I craved. And um, that changed. It really, there was almost like a definable moment after leaving the city. I lived in the deep south for two and a half years in um, Alabama. And I grew relationships, excuse me, relationships with family farmers and brought foraging into my day-to-day experience more readily. Because in, in New York, I always had to like, Imagine when the one elderberry shrub was going to have its flowers (laughs) or its fruits and extricate myself from my schedule to get over there. And it was just, it was thwarted, say the least. But in moving back to the city or back north, I decided, and it it just felt so palpable and, and clear to me, that building humanity was a lot more important than lots and lots of running around. And the solace and the serenity in being more connected to nature has been an incredible balm. Um, I I crave um, just observation, a a way to be casually observing the landscape in front of me and then understanding the infinite layers that are present there in front of me. There is a kind of joy in that. The, The aspect where I can return to my thoughts and live truly in the present moment in this kind of a landscape, it sort of brings me back to when I was a child and when I would go exploring, I was absolutely in the present moment and there's a real peace in that. And to, to conjure that here at this moment in my life, when I understand the finiteness of so many things better than when I was younger, it's, it's incredibly joyful and it's incredibly crucial. And it, I know that I'm spending my time in a way that's very meaningful as a result. That's so beautiful. And, and you're so fortunate, you know, and lucky to I have, am so lucky to have created I, this every life. single day. I think about that. Yeah. And, and to really be um, cre- having a space that you've created for yourself and honestly for others um, where you're helping them be present and feel joyful and connected to what's right in front of them, to the environment around them, to what's on their plate, to how to create a meal and how to connect with others. It's really such a beautiful gift. And it's one that you're sharing with others. I'm so thrilled that you joined me today. I love when I drop into an amazing woman's inbox and say, hi, Hi, (laughs) want to be on my show? And they say, yes, it's for me. It's, you know, it's, it's one of the the greatest joys of the last two years. I really, I, I love everything you've shared, and I love that you you've been with me today. We are thank you so much nearing the end of our time. It always um, makes me sad when I realize that we're wrapping up. Um, I have an eye on the clock. There's so much more I want to ask you. So we're going to move into a speed round. It's kind of a high energy, fun way to end. So we can share a little bit more of you with our listeners. Um, the good news is that. Anyone who's been inspired by Melina today and excited to try some of her mouth-watering recipes, there are a hundred of them in her book, A Year at Catbird Cottage. Uh, but we are going to do a quick speed round to close. Are you ready? I'm so ready. Let's do it. Okay. Writing Catbird Cottage was? The best thing in my life. Nice. What's a seasonal ingredient you're always happy to welcome back in fall? Persimmons. 
Ooh. Uh, those are also gorgeous as centerpieces, I'm going to say. Oh, my God, yes. It's like a Flemish painting. Nice. I love that. Okay. You enjoy discovering new ingredients. You've shared that. You're a forager. You you, you really do discover new ingredients uh, beyond just in the grocery store. What is something new to you that you've started cooking with that wasn't pa- part of your past? Mm, well, I found more ways to cook maitake mushrooms, hen of the woods. Nice. And I love them. Will we find those in your cookbook? Oh, yes. Awesome. Okay. We are heading into holiday cooking season. What dish do you recommend as always being a crowd pleaser? Well, the cherry rye ganache sandwich cookies are incredible. And especially with the holiday season, they're like these little gem studded, like not too sweet, but definitely indulgent cookies. And they're gorgeous. Love it. Um, I know you've worked as a food stylist. What tableware or serving piece always makes food look amazing and inviting? I love handmade ceramics that aren't necessarily symmetrical, but they are perfect. Fantastic. Okay, guests are coming soon. What dresses up the table aside from the food? Gorgeous flowers. This staple is always in my pantry. Dried beans. Surprise. This popular food is never in my grocery cart. Marshmallows. (laughs) (laughs) I love surprise answers. Okay. By the way, I have two boys and I always have marshmallows in my shopping cart. Of course you do. Yes. (laughs) Um, Finally, your one word answer to complete this sentence. As I age, I feel. Gratitude. Oh, thank you, Melina. This has been really special and a lot of fun. Before we say goodbye, how can our listeners find you, your cookbook, and Catbird Cottage? You can find me and Catbird Cottage on Instagram, Melina Hammer and Catbird Cottage. You can visit my website at melinahammer.com where there are even more recipes and pieces of media. And you can visit my Food 52 profile, visit the site, and search Melina Hammer. Thank you so much, Melina. This wraps A Certain Age, a show for women who are aging without apology. And while I have your attention, two things. One, have you taken the time yet to write an Apple podcast review for A Certain Age? If you've learned something new or simply love tuning in every week, please rate or review the show over on Apple Podcasts. Reviews help the show grow. And two, we are launching Age Out Loud over on Instagram, and we want to feature you. Do you believe your age stands for something? Are you celebrating a midlife pivot, a big birthday, or simply want to add your voice to the Age Out Loud chorus? Come join us over on Instagram at ageoutloud underscore movement or head to the A Certain Age website to learn more, acertainagepod.com. Special thanks to Michael Mancini, who composed and produced our theme music. See you next time. And until then, Age Out Loud, beauties. Beauties.